You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Well, hello and welcome to Track FM's local watering hole, the 602 Club. I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and and back with me, as she is almost every single week, the wonderfully talented and just incredible person, Christy Morris. How's it going, Christy? For a minute, I thought you were calling me a ninja. I- <laughs> Well, I mean, you do have some ninja-like skills. But so. you're saying, and just, not uh, yes. the incredibly talented ninja, <laughs> Christy Morris. The incredibly talented. Well, I can't tell people you're a ninja, then you'd have to kill them. Right. Yeah. That's secret knowledge. It's true. But no, I'm, I'm excited to, to be back. I uh, I don't know if everybody remembers, but back when we first talked about Fallout, which was the sixth of these movies, I decided to be a crazy person and watch one through six in the same weekend. Yeah. So That's awesome. <laughs> I've seen all of them now twice. Um, That's great. So I, I'm excited to be here to talk about MI2. Sorry, I missed reviewing the first one again, but I'll be here for the rest. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we're excited to be here. Uh, before we get into the movie, um, and by the way, I'm sure people are thinking, whoa, but isn't John Champion supposed to be here? Well, he could not make it this time. So we're hoping that everybody will be back third time's the charm for MI3. But before we dive in, don't forget, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, pretty much anywhere podcasts are listened to. You can find the 602 Club. Uh, make sure that if you're on Apple Podcasts, hit us up with a star rating review. Help people find the show. We've gotten some new reviews recently. It's been really nice to see people uh, doing that for us. And it does help other people when they're searching for podcasts have the 602 Club come up. You can also find us on Twitter at TrekFM or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We've got the listeners-only discussion group where you can talk about everything uh, that's coming out on TrekFM with all of the different listeners from around the world. It's called the Babel Conference, and that is on Facebook. Type Babel in the search field there, or if you're on the website at Trek.FM, click Discussion on any of the menu bars, and that will let you write in. And then last but not least, maybe you would like to send Christy and I an email. Go over to... Track.fm slash contact, choose the show, choose the 602 Club, and that will come to Christy and I. And in fact, Christy, uh, we did receive an email from Andrew, uh, and he said that awesome. he just wanted to say that he really loves listening. Um, the show is always entertaining, and he uh, also enjoys the movies in different parts of fandom, you know. And one of the things he mentioned is that um, he really likes being able to see things from a different point of view and he actually sees uh star wars episodes one through three now better because of the shows he listened to here and so uh he also would like to see us do uh the back to the future franchise and ghostbusters as well so you know i think that's definitely something that we should look into in the future but um really appreciate andrew sending us an email and uh thank you so much for listening andrew Thank you, Andrew. And I love all the Back to the Future movies, so I'm totally down with that. It's a good idea. It is a good idea. Um, and it's, 
think it's definitely worth the conversation. So I think we're going to have to put those on the, the schedule for sure. But we've arrived to our next mission, which we have chosen to accept with MI2. And one of the things that's most interesting about this series, and it's something that happens uh, one through five, all end up having different directors. You don't ever have a director repeat. Um, And so Brian De Palma, who had directed the first movie, he declines to come back, even though, you know, Cruz uh, offered it to him. And so they give it to uh, legendary director John Woo. Uh, and th- I really feel like that, you know, this is the, this is the one where this is a, a movie that feels like you can see the fingerprints of him as a director all over this movie. And to, uh, you know, as I was looking through other credits to his name, a big one that I'm sure everybody's heard of is Face Off. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, he's kind of known for the over the top style. That he, John Woo in particular has a very recognizable and specific style in his directing. And so, you know, if you go back and watch through those other movies that he's done, um, you'll see a similarity to this one. Well, one being Doves, um, you'll see that in Face Off. Um, you'll also see he kind of, um, I think he really made popular, especially in Hollywood, and you see a lot of people copy it, but it's, it's that slow motion action. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, normally we have John Champion on here, the slow-mo gentleman, but this is a right. slow-mo action. And I, there is so much slow-mo in this movie, even when there's <laughs> not really action. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe this is where Zack Snyder got it from. Yes, possibly. Although I think, I feel like, um, you know, again, Zack Snyder is not usually using it when it's not a action sequence meant to right. kind of accentuate a cool moment of action. I mean, here we literally have a, smo- a slow-mo moment when they meet over people dancing. And it's just right, like... And it just feels so awkward. It's so awkward. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so... Um, Unnecessary. It uh, yes, uh, I would say there there is a plethora of unnecessary slow mo in this movie um, because I can get it when it's the action, but there are those moments when yes, they're they're meeting in Spain for the first time. Uh, Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt uh, and Tandy Newton's Naya, and they're just kind of like circling each other around this dais that these people are dancing on. Mm-hmm. And it's all in slow-mo, and you're like, why are we going so slow here? There's no... Uh, it's very, very strange. Like, it reminds me almost of trying to give the movie, like, a telenovela feel. Like, it's overly <laughs> dramatic, dramatizing the, the scene of, and they met. I just want somebody to come in, like, have you ever seen the... um? I think it's Mad TV, and they did a skit, which is a telenovela for people who have only had like three hours of Spanish in the th- you know the sixth grade, right? And so <laughs> all of the scenes are like people just entering dramatically with the slow, kind of the slow mo being like, "Donde está la biblioteca?" 
you know, like <laughs> right. everybody's saying things like they really it, it, putting it in that context, but it just nonsense words, basically. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. It it does bring you to this place very early in the movie where you're creating a motif of, of like this slow mo. But it seems to be being used in places where, you know, I get it in an action sequence, you know, and usually right. in an action sequence, especially like you mentioned, like a Zack Snyder movie and a superhero type movie, um, it's usually done to almost kind of create that splash page, you know, where that there's that mm-hmm. one scene of action in a, in a comic. But here it's like, no, it's just two people circling each other, looking at each other for the first time. And it's just and they they they. It's done a lot more in a lot of other scenes in the movie. That's just a prime example um, mm-hmm. where it's it's not like they have guns out, you know, and they're shooting each other and stuff because that's the other part. I mean, the action is, you know, John Woo made famous the kind of the gun kung fu feel that would be made even more famous and I think done even better in The Matrix, you know, that kind of action. Um, right. But yeah, I mean that's this movie. I mean, I would I would say I don't know if you feel this way too, but more than anything, especially since you've seen all six Mission Impossible movies, I feel like this is the Mission Impossible movie that doesn't really feel like a Mission Impossible movie. It just feels like a John Woo movie. I I would agree with that, and it it did kind of disappoint me in that it was so over the top in these ways because I think at its core it has a really great plot idea. Um, and some good actors and good characters. It's just the that thing that makes it feel so cheap and more like it's, you know, a ripoff of something we already know rather than its own thing as part of the MI series. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that was the one thing that kind of made me, pulled me out of the seriousness of what was going on. Yeah, I really like what you're saying there. You know, I... I I hate to say that I was, you know, because it it seems a little bit cliche to say, oh, it was pulled out of the movie, um, yeah, you know. But in many ways, I I am pulled out of the movie because there are these things happening that don't feel like they connect well with what came before in Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. I mean that that movie feels very kind of grounded, down to earth, and everything. And I mean. Even just some of the action sequences themselves, the way that Tom Cruise is is like fighting or whatever, it's like I I he has to be on a wire to be completing those moves. Mm-hmm. The, I I know Tom Cruise is amazing stuntman, but there's I, I don't I can't imagine that anybody can do those flips unless you're like Bruce Lee, right? <laughs> but I, I still did think it was cool that Tom wanted to do all of his own stunts and. I, I think in the end he didn't end up doing every single one, but 90% of them. So, I mean, hey, I, I do applaud him for that because I would totally oh, yeah. be like, nope, too dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I was reading that he did about 95% of the stunts, uh, you know, yeah. but there were just some that he could not do in this movie. But, you know, um, you know, I, talking about this next mission and talking about the fact that it's a really something of a John Woo film. Did I don't know if you knew this, but the first cut of this movie was three hours long, and I did not know that. That's insane. Yeah, uh, so you know the the cheesiness that you felt for two hours could have been a whole extra hour longer, and 
It's actually none other than, I mean, he's a legendary editor. Stuart Baird re-edited the film because John Woo wouldn't. Uh, and it's his work here that gives us what we get here. Uh, he also did uh, Laura Croft Tomb Raider uh, for Paramount. And that's what ends up getting him the job for Star Trek Nemesis. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much you know, for uh, doing that Mission Impossible 2. Not only did you give us Mission Impossible 2, but you also ruined Star Trek franchise by <laughs> allowing Stuart Baird to get the job to do that. So, congratulations. I'll, I'll permit Lara Croft, though, because I'm cheesy and love Tomb Raider. You know, uh, the first Tomb Raider, I rewatched that not too long ago, and I would agree with you. It is like utter cheese ball. But there's something about it where, I mean, it, you're not expecting much more than a, a really super cheesy movie. I mean, especially since mm-hmm. it, it, it's based off a video game. Right. So That's ultimately where it stems from. Right. But so. I, I just always had the feeling of I could be her. So there you go. There you go. So, yeah, I you know, coming on this next mission, it's very interesting because everything changes from the first movie. Um, and I think it's going to be really interesting as we transition then into the third movie to kind of see how things kind of switch again. Um, one of the things I noticed, too, uh, you know, even here, one of the things that they change is, you know, the credits for Mission Impossible traditionally play over the music and you see scenes that happen from, you know, the movie throughout the credits there at the beginning as the music plays. And they don't do that this time. Um, there isn't even that. So, I mean, it's like there's really a discontinuity between the way the rest of the Mission Impossible movies will do uh, even just the credits alone and this one. Yeah, it, I feel like the thing that they do sort of to its detriment over and over again throughout this movie is making it feel like it stands on its own. Um, you know, in the first one, I felt like we had a lot more of them throwing in the Mission Impossible theme um, throughout the score, for example. And then in this one, really didn't get that as much. Mm. Um, And then on top of it, what we were talking about with the, you know, camera work of doing the constant slow-mo and really just felt like it was John Woo fluffing his own ego. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I do think you're right. Yeah, there, not only is it, I mean, you expertly point out it's the camera work, too. It's not just the slow-mo, but the camera mm-hmm. work here is so, it's like overly sweeping. Like, the camera's always sweeping and moving in a way that just doesn't feel like Mission Impossible in a lot of ways. Yeah. You yeah. Know, especially with that first movie, kind of set that template. Um, and this movie just, it does, I think, I think you're absolutely right. It's like everything is over the top by 100%. Like I said, like telenovela. It feels like it, everything is meant to be so much more dramatic than it really needs to be for a good story that it, that it messed up. But but I still like the story. <laughs> That's, and I think you're... Let's get into the story because I think you're right that oh, thanks. the movie does have a good baseline like the story that they came up with is not bad if it had been done well and i uh recognized actually when i first 
heard them uh, mentioning the names of the um, disease and the cure, um, Chimera and Bellerophon remembered that I had heard it somewhere in a history class before and I looked it up. Um, so actually Bellerophon was a hero of Greek mythology. So that kind of makes sense that that would be like the antidote. Um, and Chimera was a fire breathing female monster with a lion's head, a goat's body and a serpent's tail. So it makes sense that Chimera would be the evil side. Yeah, no, that part really works. And I think, you know, the, the, the idea of a organization, a terrorist organization wanting to get its hands on this kind of, um, weapon to be able to make money i mean all of that i think makes sense you know it, it feels yeah um in many ways i don't know if you felt like this at all but this movie feels very similar to goldeneye in some ways to me mm -hmm. yeah i think uh especially dealing with this whole biological warfare thing of course, people would pay through the nose to make sure that it's not going to happen to them. Um, so it, I think it's a, a brilliant idea from the standpoint of what's going to motivate the villain in the movie. Um, and then too, you know, the whole fact of what it's going to end up doing for them in the long run, you know, why, why do they need the money? Um, it, I think it, it all works really well and it makes it a terrifying idea especially when they're showing like what happens to a person that doesn't get the antidote <laughs> i don't know how you felt about that but that actually scared me i'm like it's like ebola but worse yeah that was creepy um that was really creepy um no i mean it feels like something that you know mission impossible you know the, the imf would want to make sure is stopped and mm -hmm. It's just it was it was fascinating to me because you know the the story here we get uh, the the main bad guy who is actually a f turned bad former IMF agent um, who is you know trying to make you know billions of dollars um, by stealing this chimera and bellerophon so he has both he had, you know the the weapon and the antidote um mm -hmm. and it just felt very similar to goldeneye where we have you know 006 who you know was thought dead betrays the war you know betrays uh, mi6 all of that felt very similar um even some of the moments in the movie feel kind of similar to you know when they have the car chase and um you know he's chasing her feels very similar to what we get with the the car chase in Goldeneye between right. you know him and on the top. There's a lot of similarities and and not only that but there's just the storyline itself. And I think part of this is because Ethan is is pretty much on his own really for the most of the movie. It just feels more like they're treating this like Bond than they did Mission Impossible. I get what you're saying. It that um especially having that return to a um a previous agent and it, the i don't know i just feel like mission impossible is more everyday and i don't want to overuse the word grounded but it, more grounded and then bond you know had more of that um otherworldly feel more um I don't know, maybe I'm not getting the right words, but there there was definitely a big difference in the two franchises 
And um, especially with the gadgets, there were a lot more with Mission Impossible. That was kind of more the focus. And this felt like it strayed away from that. Yeah, I get what you're saying. You know, in, in many ways, Bond kind of feels like a fantasy spy. You know, like it's, mm-hmm. it's it is already over the top. Whereas Mission Impossible, especially that first movie, was very much like the show where, you know, obviously the most fantastical element was the masks, you know, creating these masks and, right. and being able, you know, that's really the most fantastical element of it. And whereas this, I think, you know, part of it is the way that John Woo is directing everything and it makes it feel this kind of like larger than life when this story doesn't necessarily need that, you know, I mm-hmm. mean, if you just kind of play it straight, um, you, it, 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 I think it would come off more as a, a decent spy genre type film. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's, it's this making it larger than it actually is. I don't know if it, I don't know if the story just really supports that. Um, yeah. I think that's and the actually thing. I realized what I was trying to say. Sorry, I was having trouble finding my words, guys. But um, is that Bond always felt like he was saving the world, whereas Mission Impossible was focused on the mission at hand. That it wasn't on that large of a scale, and that you know Bond was always on that large of a scale. This shouldn't have been, and yet it was. Yeah. No, I think I think that's. That's a really good way of putting it. I think your Bond, for the most part, in those really big movies does feel like that. You know, like mm-hmm. the, that the world is at stake if he doesn't stop them. And, and Like in Goldeneye. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so it's interesting to me, too, that, um, you know, this story also has a uh, some similarities between Alfred Hitchcock movies, one notorious and the other North by Northwest um, and notorious the agent persuades a woman to, to go back to her former lover to spy on him, which is exactly what happens here, you know, despite mm-hmm. the fact that they fall in love themselves. And then in, in North by Northwest, you've got the right-hand man who warns that the woman is a mole, um, very similar. And what's interesting, of course, they're both got Cary Grant in him too. So there's a, mm-hmm. I feel like this movie feels like those two movies and Goldeneye kind of all put together um, so I, I think there's a lot of mixing of, of like spy type movies here. It doesn't necessarily feel like new or groundbreaking. Um, but I don't ever really feel like the story, it, it doesn't feel like it gets its due. Like we, the story doesn't get a chance to stand on its own at all because I think you're too swept away by being swept away. Or going really, really slow. <laughs> yeah, I did too remember I wanted to give a special shout out to the uh, man who created Chimera and Bellerophon. Um, the actor is Raid Serbedzija. Serbedzija. <laughs> um, I can't tell what maybe he is actually like Russian. Um, but I had only ever seen him before in uh, Mighty Joe Young. Oh, really? But he's actually a really great actor. 
Yeah, I love when you uh, see a movie and you just see somebody that you haven't really seen except for maybe one or two other places. And so I think that's really interesting. So, Yeah, and he was actually the villain in that movie. So I thought it was interesting that he's like just the nice little scientist guy that needs help. You know what's really interesting about this movie too than the story-wise is I did not remember that Ronald D. Moore and Brandon Braga, who are Star Trek writers, they both wrote for uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and then Voyager. Um, um, Ronald D. Moore would also go on to, of course, do Battlestar Galactica, the new, uh, the the remake. Um, And and then, of course, um, you know, they both wrote uh, Star Trek Generations. Um, And so, and Star Trek First Contact. So, I mean, they have a, you know, really firm grasp of that i thought it was really interesting seeing them uh write this movie and and so it made sense why you know when we meet tom cruise he's rock climbing so it's it's uh very similar to you know star trek 5 when we meet <laughs> our hero and kirk is climbing up el capitan so <laughs> i'll take your word for it um but uh you know it it's interesting to see that that's another i mean cuz this movie has a lot of those you know star trek connections with again as i mentioned Stuart Baird being the director of star trek nemesis and so mm-hmm. um and then i think this movie more than i i didn't count but i think this movie has more mask reveals than any other movie in mission impossible it has a lot it possibly does have the most. Maybe we should go back through and count next time. <laughs> oh, you're not going to make me watch it again, are you? <laughs> <laughs> you mean you didn't enjoy this? Um, but yeah, I think that um, the the mask reveals are still my favorite thing because I, I don't think it was until MI3 that we actually get to see how the masks are made in such a hurry, right? I think that was the one where they actually show how they do it. Yeah, I think you're right. But uh, I remember through the first two movies, the first time I ever saw them going, how did they do that? Jeez, they're so accurate. Where do they get the materials from? Is it silicone? Where's the paint coming from? It it blows my mind. So, I mean, I'm okay with it. The other thing that I find fascinating about the mask reveals, too, is is there are so many of them that... Every time that they're used from the first time on, I feel like it's not a surprise anymore. You know, right, you're always mistrusting the situation. Exactly. And I feel like this movie almost kills the idea of that. And I would say specifically the moment when Tom Cruise, you know, they're they're at that that last a uh, confrontation area um in that I don't even know what it is, but it looks like a bunker almost. And, you know, he brings the guy in and he's obviously got another face on, you know, and it's like you, you totally know in that moment that Tom Cruise is is not the guy who's actually tied up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the other guy. Um, And that, you know, when he shoots him, he's shooting the wrong guy and everything. And it's just... It was really frustrating to me because I felt like you were, you had taken something that is is supposed to be the kind of like <gasps> moment and mm-hmm. turned it into something really drab and boring. Well, and that you just, it completely takes the shock value out of it. You already expect it. You already know that it's not 
going to be who you think it is. So you're not going to be shocked. <laughs> it loses its effect when you do it that much. So yeah, I agree with you. I still think it's cool though. Yeah, I know. I mean, I love when they pull off the masks and I think it's, I mean, that's, that is just fun in and of itself. I just think mm-hmm. that they, they do themselves a disservice by not allowing you to actually enjoy it because instead of like making it anything that would shock anybody, you're just like, oh, okay, well, yeah, of course that was coming. Yeah. Um, so especially in that moment, it's like, when he pulls, when Tom Cruise, you know, pulls the mask off as he's running, you already knew like the whole time. And it's just like, this is, yeah, it's just not as exciting. So, you know, but was there anything else for you at all with the story that, that stood out or that you liked? Um, I really, like I said, loved the, the overall where they were going with it originally, as far as the um, yin and yang of Chimera and Bellerophon, um, the fear that it instills in people of just the prospect of biological warfare, because that's like fighting dirty in the worst way. You know, it's killing people from the inside out and they don't even know it's happening rather than getting in a, you know, a war with someone in any other way. Um, so I, I loved that aspect of it the most. Um, but I, I do think that Dugray Scott was a great convincing villain um i i've again it's so funny i only knew him from one other token thing and it was the movie um ever after where he was with with drew barrymore and he was the prince so it was definitely different seeing him now as the complete polar opposite you know he's the evil one but he was really great at being angry and mistrusting and um feeling like he's always got Tandy Newton playing Naya as his captive. Um, I thought he was excellent. And this was the first movie that I would have ever seen her in. No, I'm right there with you. Um, I think, I think you're right. I feel like he does a a really good job of, of, you know, playing Sean Ambrose. I think he's a a pretty good um, bad guy. And like you said, he just, he, he does very well at playing sadistic. Like he enjoys yeah. torturing people, you know, that moment where he is shooting, you know, what he thinks is Hunt, you know, he's just relishing it. Um, and I think that was great. Um, and, you know, it it's fascinating to me. It's because of this movie and he gets hurt in this movie that he doesn't get to go and be Wolverine because he was cast as Wolverine, actually, in the X-Men movie. So wow. that's why we get Hugh Jackman as Wolverine and not him. Well, I still think, though, Hugh Jackman was the right choice. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. So, so yeah, I think, you know, he's a decent bad guy. Um, again, even the moment when he when um, he's pretending to be Hunt on the plane at the beginning, you know, he snaps mm-hmm. that guy's neck and everything. And then, of course, when he pulls off the mask, you realize he's the bad guy. Um, just really, uh, yeah, I mean, he's somebody that you kind of hate in this movie and you just you kind of want to see Ethan Hunt kill him. So it feels good when he does. Yeah. And I, that's kind of what you, I, th- I think, you know, in this type of movie, you want that from your bad guy. You want the guy to feel like he's so bad that you do want him to be dead by the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah. You're going to take him down the whole time. And I I agree with you too. You know, I, I think Tandy Newton, this is the first time I remember seeing her in a film. And, um, 
I think she's great in the in the role. Um, and I I don't know if I completely love what they do with her character, though. I agree. I was going to say that next because it it just feels like they start her off great and like she's going to be a strong woman who can, you know, call her her own shots and stuff. And then they make it out like she's just the damsel in distress, actually, who's everyone's property and never really gets her own character development. Yeah, I mean, she's just kind of used. Yeah. You know, um, she's everybody's plaything. Which is, dis- yeah, it's really disappointing. Um, because, like you said, I think she starts off really well. You know, they, there's a really a fun interplay between her and Tom Cruise at the beginning, you know, where he's testing her because he thinks he's going to be putting to use her talents as a thief. Mm-hmm. So he wants to see how good she is and all of that. I think that's really fun. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the moment I feel like that they have them hop into bed together... You know, and then they they create this really bad love triangle, which I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to make you more invested, right, in the film. Mm -hmm. But it's like it just becomes really cliche. Oh, she's, you know, caught between a love and a hard place, you know, and it's it's, you know, it's uh, and and then even the way that they talk about her. There's a line that um, there's a line that Anthony Hopkins has about something of to the effect about how, you know, she's a woman. She has everything she needs to do this job. And it's just like, uh, I get what you're saying and all, but that just is, it's just, come on. We don't need yeah. to treat her like you were saying, like a piece of property, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just, I'm really disappointed with the way that they end up using this character. And it, it's a little bit sad, you know, they they wanted her to come back for the third movie and she would have been part of the team, but she did not want to come back at that point. Um, and so it's just really frustrating. Like, I just, she gets, she's a good actress who I don't think gets her due in this film, which is like a lot of this movie, unfortunately. Yeah, well, and I mean, I don't know, but maybe the reason she didn't want to come back was because she felt like this character was written in such a sexist way, honestly, because, I mean, I, I remember, actually, now that you mention it, that phrase made me so uncomfortable because it basically felt like they were calling her a whore. Yes, yes. And like, you know, like she has she has all the physical goods and the, you know, conniving personality to get it done. But, you know, we know... When we're down to brass tacks, what she'll use? Wink, wink. Well, and there's a there's a supreme difference between, and we've talked about it with all of the Bond movies, right? There's a supreme difference between, um, and we've seen this with a couple of the Bond movies where you have um, the strong female characters, the the really well written ones that are using their sexuality kind of the way that Bond does, right? And it's right. to get what they want. But none of this is what she wants. She's been like kind of tricked into basically doing this. She's been coerced right. into doing this more so than it's really been her choice because this is her job and what she does. You know, I mean, that, yeah. that's what makes a big difference there. And so, yeah, I really agree with you. I think it it is just frustrating to see the character written in this way because even in the first Mission Impossible movie, the women I don't felt were written like this. You know, when she turns out to be the a bad person in league with her husband, she had already she'd made that decision 
herself. Like that was her, right. her you know, her husband's decision, right? So I, I think here you you take away so much of her her agency as a person, um, and treat her like an object, mm-hmm. um, and sadly. I hate to say it, but you treat her like a sex object. And too, in that um, bedroom scene where she's alone with Sean and it feels like he's just sort of studying her and like telling her, take your clothes off. It's so creepy. It's yeah, really uncomfortable. Well, right. And she's having to do that because she has to then sell that she's there for the right reasons. And it's just it's so creepy. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I mean... In that way, we make the bad guy really despicable and disgusting. True. But I still think there's a much better way to write your female character. Uh, especially, you know, again, when Anthony Hopson says what he says, it makes him no different than Sean, really. Like mm-hmm. They're treating her the same way. And yeah. people shouldn't be that kind of pawn. Um, so, especially, yeah. I, I feel like, I don't know, maybe I'm just old-fashioned, but I feel like comes to sexuality people really should get to make that choice of how they use their sexuality themselves not by somebody else like that yeah you know, no i don't think coerced. that's old-fashioned i think they i think they could definitely in, in any situation like this like we've even had in bond movies like you were saying you know that there's a better way to write a female character to where they're getting to make some of their own decisions and that they have a a better um strength about them and ability to do things and not just always being treated like property so but tandy newton great actress yeah she is um and obviously uh she's fantastic i mean if you've seen westworld she's wonderful she's so and good star wars and star wars she is so good in <laughs> solo i loved her in solo um yeah but yeah she got a lot more time in westworld of course well, and you know, you I heard so many people complaining about her part in in Star Wars um with Solo, but I mean, here I feel like she's much more misrepresented and, and misused as a character than there. Yep. You know, that woman makes all of her choices for herself, you know. I mean, she's not coerced yeah. into doing anything. She willingly gives up her life because she wants to, not because she has to. So, um yeah, I think again, much better. Um what was really interesting, and we kind of talked about this a little bit before, we get a really, really small team. And honestly, I feel like it's kind of sad because you only really care about one of them. And I think it's, you know, it's because Luther is the only one we know. And mm-hmm. they don't bring in, I mean, they have, uh, John Polson is Billy Baird, the pilot. But, I mean, he doesn't really do anything to, like, make himself... I mean, he, he's just a pilot. That's really all he is. You know, there's there's nothing else distinguishing about. I mean, I feel like I cared more about uh, Emilio Estevez in the first movie uh, <laughs> who dies, what, like 10 minutes in than I do about yeah. this guy. I don't know. I was oh, just yeah. really frustrated with that. Yeah, I absolutely love that we get Luther back and that then, you know, we we know he continues on into the other movies, but um, it did surprise me, I guess, because they maybe they felt like in the first Mission Impossible that so much of the team either died or ended up being um, on the other side. Um, you know, it, maybe they felt like this time they wanted to try doing it the opposite way and having a small team. I don't know. But um, it'd be interesting to know why they wrote it that way. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. 
And I, do you think it's because, I mean, it feels like this movie is trying to mimic more of a Bond style than it is Mission Impossible, I feel like. I think so, it, because there's, I feel like there's too many similarities to it have not have been trying to do that. Um, because Bond always had a, you know, small team. It was basically him, M, Money Penny, um, and um, Felix sometimes, um, and Q. Um, but, you know, I mean, even sometimes it focused more on Bond and Felix or Bond and Q than it did on the other people involved. So I, I think that absolutely um, either the way John was going or the writers with this script were going was mimicking a Bond film. No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you, the way that you even like put that with the way that Bond deals with a, a few people um, throughout the movie that he's in um, in his storylines. Yeah, I mean, this feels very much like that. You even had the M-like character in the leader of IMF uh, and Anthony Hopkins. And then you have Ving Rhames coming in, kind of like his gadget guy, you know, like mm-hmm. computer guy. Uh, and then you had a pilot who gets him where he needs to go. I mean, it, it, but that's it. And, and we only really care about Luther because we know him from the first movie. But I mean, it's not like Luther gets any kind of whatever. I mean, there's no character development here whatsoever. He's just no. there behind the computer. So, But I would like to think maybe if of it in a positive way that it's more that Ethan as a character doesn't trust anybody now and so he knew at least that he could trust luther yeah that's a i mean that's a good way to look at it i think that's probably if i'm if i'm trying to kind of rationalize story-wise i think you've nailed Mm -hmm. it why you why you would see him not really use other people in this movie and why he would be kind of trying to do it alone yeah Yeah. i like that so well thank you yeah that's what i'm here for yeah, you definitely made that part of the movie better for me because it, it does make complete sense after the experience you had in one where half your team turned out to be, you know, on the wrong side. Mm-hmm. And then you lost the other half, uh, the majority of them. Yeah, so I like that. What did you think, you know, I, I mean, we talked about the stunts and mm-hmm. we talked about, you know, Tom Cruise, you know, really getting all over John Woo about, look, I do my own stunts. I don't want to look like this, you know, I don't want to look like I'm cheating. Um, I, the audience knows the difference. And um, what did you think of the stunts? Cause, I mean, because there's a lot of things going on in the movie stunt-wise. You have the rock climbing. You have the car chase, jumping off buildings. You, you've got the motorcycle chase at the end. Um, mm-hmm. You know, gung-fu action fights, doves. Doves. <laughs> doves. <laughs> So um, I remembered from the first time I saw this movie, something that I didn't like. And I was like, it was never in this movie. And then when I was watching back through it, I was like, it was this movie. I thought the rock climbing was excellent. Um, That didn't bother me at all. I really, really felt like my fear of heights in that. Um, But the motorcycle chase, I hate with a burning passion, it just feels so ridiculous and like things that bikes wouldn't do. <laughs> I'm like, no, screw that. Take it out. It's so bad. And I think I, I, I think it's this. I, I was talking to a friend of the show, John Mills, about this. And I think it's because 
part of the action style that John Woo uses, it didn't translate well to American cinema here for mm-hmm. Mission Impossible. Because that kind of scene works well in a, in, I think, you know, in a different form of cinema, you know. Uh, yeah. But for Mission Impossible, it just doesn't work for it to kind of feel like an anime movie. Well, and I didn't think anime as much just um, too much of an action movie. You know, if you're doing like Die Hard kind of stuff, then it might make more sense. But it, Mission Impossible should be more drawn back a little bit or a lot of it. And so it, it just felt like it was way too much action and ridiculous things that don't seem plausible, as well as throwing in the slow motion that you're going, oh, good grief. Well, I mean, and come on, they end the motorcycle chase scene with them like flying towards each other and grabbing each other in the air because they've jumped off their motorcycles and then landing on the ground. I mean, yeah, there's there's no sense of reality in what happens in this movie in that in that way because like if you did that and then somebody landed on top of you you're not going to continue to fight i don't care who you are like you're going to be breathless probably got broken ribs because somebody landed on you and you're trying to figure out where you are (laughs) yeah i mean like i think the problem became is that the action um especially in the moments like that so beyond reality that I I can't buy this as a Mission Impossible movie because there's just there there's nothing grounding it, you know, except mm-hmm. when they land on the ground, but then they're doing like stunts and flips and everything, which I just you know, it it doesn't that's just not the Mission Impossible style and it doesn't kind of fit that kind of brutal you know hand-to-hand combat that you would expect um it just feels more like a kung fu movie and this is not supposed to be a kung fu movie this is supposed to be a mission impossible movie yep no that's exactly how i felt about it too i actually was looking for um the movie that I thought that it felt a lot like, and I was trying to remember who the director was, but I, I was thinking of Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen that one, but I can see what you're saying. Yeah, but I just I couldn't find who the um, director was. Hang on, let me see. Joseph McGendy Nickel. Yeah, known as Mick G. Oh yeah, Mick G, that's right. Yeah, so he did the remake of Charlie's Angels, Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. He did a Terminator movie, Salvation. Ugh, awful movie. <laughs> um, he did some directing on Supernatural. Oh, okay, yeah. And uh, Lethal Weapon. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that's why um, I think maybe um, Mick G and Wu have some similarities well, and I'm sure McG probably just stole them from John Woo. I mean, because I, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people took his style. And, it, you know, I think The Matrix is the one that really made American audiences understand that style. Um, yeah. But then it felt like after The Matrix, it was just repeated over and over again because mm-hmm. it became yep. really popular right around that 2000 time. Yep. 
Well, and, you know, The Matrix had just come out and this this came out. And I think that was probably the issue. And I think that was, for me, the issue then. And it's still the issue now when I watch this movie is that it feels like it's mimicking a style that doesn't fit the Mission Impossible franchise. And, and really, in the end, it's a movie where, you know, John Woo could not come in and create a Mission Impossible movie. He just came in and created what he always does, which is a John Woo movie. And there's a, there's yep. a big difference for that. Um, you know, it would be like doing the same thing in a Star Wars film. You know, it's like Star Wars has a, 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 a very set framework for how things look the dialogue and all, you know, the, the shot composition and all those kind of things. And you can switch mm-hmm. that up and change things around quite a bit, but um, you can't come in and make a movie that feels like this, you know, in that franchise either. You can't you know? come in and make a Ryan Johnson movie when you're trying to make a bunch of Star Wars movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, I will let that one slide because we could go down okay. a whole other path. But no, I agree with you. I, you know, like the rock climbing, I thought was fun and cool, and it was a good way to kind of reintroduce us to Ethan. Makes sense. The guy would be on vacation after what happened in the last movie. Um, you know, and you, the car chase is where I think felt things for me action wise kind of to start to fall apart a little bit because one, it felt very much like the car chase we had seen in in um golden eye but also um there was slow-mo there um you know the jumping off the buildings and things were cool you know i mean that wasn't bad you know the moment where he has to dive out of a helicopter and you know get into that building um Mm -hmm. it felt like that was like one upping what they did in the first movie which was fine it wasn't bad but i mean yeah the moment you got to the motorcycle chase and then these gung fu action fights and then doves flying everywhere um, and then the slow-mo of him, like, in the fire, you know, like, and the dove yes. flies through, and you're just like, what are you, what is happening in this it's movie? It's a magic show. There's <laughs> doves <Yeah>. everywhere. <laughs> uh, man, I felt like um, Arrested Development, where, like, you're going to end up with that dead dove you want to return to the store. Um, <laughs> uh, gosh. Yeah. It's, it's very, it's an, it's a very strange movie. I would say, I will say that. I think... It's a movie that it doesn't quite know what it wants to be. You know, do I want to be a uh, you know a Hong Kong action film, or do I want to be a you know an American action movie? You know, very down to earth, and it it just can't find its place. Um, and and I think that's that's frustrating. And it's interesting to me though. I was looking at the numbers today. This is actually. The second highest grossing Mission Impossible movie of all time. Like, wow. Uh, it, in the US. Like, it, and was MI1 the first? No. Um, the highest now is Fallout in the US. Okay. And then it's Mission Impossible 2. Um, now, if you look at the worldwide gross, like, altogether, um, it's actually uh, Mission Impossible 2 is the, uh, the fourth movie. So, I mean, th- this movie made a lot of money. Um, it was one mm-hmm. of the highest grossing movies of 2000 as well. So, I mean, that's a crazy thought. Um, and I don't, I, I don't know why. Like, I really am having a hard time. In fact, I'm looking right now, and this is the third highest grossing movie of 2000. 
under Castaway and How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Huh. So That's interesting. Yeah, this movie made a lot of money. And I guess, you know, the only thing that I can say is really being glad for it is that it made that amount of money so that they'd want to come back and do a third movie. Um, yeah, I feel which like, we do want. So Yeah. So, I mean, without that, we wouldn't have gotten that third movie. Um, and so, you know, we have J.J. Abrams coming in uh, in uh, the third movie to direct. So I'm very yes. excited to talk to you and John about that one. But if you were going to rate Mission Impossible 2, what do you think? So for the first time, I'm going to come in and um, give a, a lower number. I think because of the um, over-the-top um, scenery as far as camera angles, the um, motorcycle chase especially, which drove me crazy, and the mishandling of the female character played by Tandy Newton, that it takes off a lot of points for me. So even though I liked the idea of the story, I think there were so many things that did a disservice to this movie overall and that it didn't fit in with the rest of the Mission Impossible movies. It felt like a John Woo movie. I give it a four out of 10 because I think that it does still redeem itself with the fact of the um, biological warfare idea um, and that I love all the Mission Impossible movies as a whole, but it, this is my least favorite of all six movies. Yeah, I am I 100% right there with you. Um, you know, I, I rate this one and a half doves out of five. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, I, and I don't really rate movies that low very often, but I feel like this is just a, a missed opportunity. And I think you rightly put it, you know, look, this movie I think would have been a lot better in the hands of a director who kind of understood Mission Impossible. And I, I would have loved to have seen what Brian De Palma would have done with this second movie. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think 100% it just would have been something completely different uh, in that sense. And, you know, if you take away all of those um, John Woo trappings, I think you really do have something here that could have been a, a decent movie. But there's just this... I mean, and, and again, look, this movie is a commercial success. So I, you know, that's one of those things. A movie making a lot of money doesn't necessarily translate to the fact that it's an actually good movie. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the fun things about doing this. And, you know, I hope you've had fun listening to, to us talk about it. Um, we try to be as constructive as we can and why things don't work for us in the movie. Um, and I hope that, um, you know, I'd love, we'd love to hear your opinions. So find us on Twitter at track FM or of course on over on Facebook on the Babel conference. And we'd love to talk to you there. Um, we really want to say a huge thank you because the 602 club comes to you each and every week because of our associate producers here through Patreon, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millette and Daniel Noah. They've been supporting the show for a long time now. And not only do they support this show, but they support the entire network through Patreon, making sure everything we do keeps coming to you each and every week. It is a very large network that we have, and there's absolutely no way we can do this without your support. So we encourage you, go over to patreon.com slash trackfm and see how you can become part of our team today. Every little bit helps. We have also some great contribution levels where you get some extra perks for your support level. But honestly, it, it 
it doesn't matter to much how much. Every little bit a month helps. So again, patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, Christy, if anybody wants to talk to you about, you know, Mission Impossible or what we've got coming up next on the 602 Club, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bespin Bell. And then, of course, in the Babel Conference as well to discuss everything. Definitely feel free to send us an email as well since we read those and respond to them on the show. Uh, I would love to discuss more of this with anybody. Um, And then also you can find me on uh, my friend's the Star Wars Report, um, their show once a month. I'm doing a five minutes of fashion with uh, Star Wars men's and women's fashion and accessories. So feel free to check that out too. Yes, as everyone should, because we all need more Star Wars fashion in our lives. Um, but you can also find me here on the network doing um, The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek's Deep Space Nine. I'm also doing a couple of shows on the Nerd Party Network. One is called Aggressive Negotiations with, we talked about him earlier tonight, John Mills. We talk about Star Wars each and every week. Just a fun topic that comes to mind. It's a lot of fun. If you love Star Wars, that's the show for you. You can also find me doing Owl Post there with Drea Kaufman. And I talk about uh, Harry Potter each and every week with her. We go through one chapter at a time throughout the entire series. We're actually right in the middle of the order of the phoenix right now so it's been a lot of fun check that mm. out and then last but not least cinema stories with my good friend courtney where we talk about films through the lens of faith but with all that said we really want to say thank you so much for joining us and y'all come back now you hear Thank <laughs> you.